0: I'm Dr Sharon Blackie, and I'd like to welcome you to my podcast, This Mythic Life. Like all of my work, this podcast is drawn from ancient but still bubbling wellsprings, from the old fairy tales, myths, and philosophies of the West. These traditions, from the magical stories of Old Ireland to the soul centered myth-tellings of ancient Greece, are rich, complex, and beautiful. They offer up a world in which everything is not only alive but has purpose and intentionality of its own i believe that it's time to reclaim those ways of being and seeing and bring them back out into the world where they belong in this series of conversations centered around the publication of my book haggitude reimagining the second half of life i offer you reflections from women who can sprinkle a few breadcrumbs to help us find our way back home the dark forest of our forgetting. Hagitude is a radical rewriting of the future for all women in their mid and elder years, beginning with the reclaiming of menopause as a liberating alchemical moment from which to shift into your chosen, authentic and fulfilling future. You can find out more about Hagitude, both the book and the membership program, at hagitude.org. Welcome to another in my series of Haggitude podcasts. And this afternoon, I'm delighted to be joined by my friend, Christine Valtus-Paintner, uh, with whom I enjoyed many fine brunches and lunches in the days that we were both living in the same place in, um, in the very wonderful city of Galway in Ireland. Um, so welcome. Thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you, Sharon. It's always wonderful to be with you.
0: And Christine is a writer and a teacher who organizes I guess um, a series or curates a series of online programs roughly in the Christian tradition called Abbey of the Arts. So Christine tell us a little bit more about your background and what brought you to the work.
1: Well I um, I actually trained as an academic uh, similar to you. Um, I, had, I got a PhD in Christian spirituality and I always thought I would go on into academic life. And I did teach for a few years uh, as an adjunct professor when I lived in Seattle in theology. But at the same time, I was also doing work in spiritual direction and leading retreats. And and as I kind of went along, I realized I I really didn't like working for other people. And I really uh, wanted to do the work that I wanted to do and not fill somebody else's curriculum. So, and actually that was, you know, 15 years ago when I founded this virtual monastery. And uh, so long before people were like, everybody was doing online programs, but that online, that opening into the online world uh, was really, um, yeah, it was, it was a great sort of thrust for me to be able to walk away from Uh, Academic teaching altogether, and and focus just exclusively on my own work. So, which is basically leading online retreats, online contemplative prayer services. We did lead we did lead some pilgrimages in person for a while pre COVID, but that's on hold indefinitely. Um, You know, I write books, um, and mainly they're they're rooted in. The Christian contemplative tradition uh, and drawing on primarily desert, Celtic, and Benedictine spiritualities. So the monastic tradition is really what excites me the most. <laughs> so
0: and, and given that we are used to hearing, I guess more about men in those traditions than we are about women, um I'm really looking forward to exploring some of the women in midlife and similar stages in the Christian tradition who who have something to tell us about hagitude and talking about hagitude what does the word hag conjure up for you because it's one of those that definitely polarizes people how do you see the word
1: well I would say that up until a few years ago I definitely would have had a more Sort of negative image of the hag. I certainly wouldn't have aspired to be a hag (laughs) in my own life. I would have pictured more that sort of witch archetype, um, you know, the one who lives in the woods and eats children, and you know, is very frightening. Uh, As I've gotten older, um, and sort of (laughs) broadened my own perspective on on archetypes and what it is I want to aspire to in my life, I. I think, I feel like I'm I'm not, like the co kind of idea of crone, I actually kind of feel like in that idea of mother maiden crone that there's a stage missing that I would call the queen in between the mother and the crone, because I don't feel like I'm at the crone stage, but I feel like I'm certainly approaching it and I'm gleaning the wisdom and I can see the, the harvest that's coming. So for me, the crone and the hag are fairly similar in my mind in terms of that energy. And she's really, now I, I find her very exciting because she, she is the witch and the one, but the one, you know, who's like covered with the warts and the hairs growing out of her face and the, you know, like the one that um, you know, frightens people, but because but because of her power, and because she just, you know, rejects, you know, what other people's uh, ideas of how you should be in the world are, and she she just lives in fully into herself. Um, I'll just share that my my mother she died quite suddenly when I when she was sixty years old, and one of the things I grieved most was that. In the few years before she died, she was really starting to live into that side of herself, into the fullness of who she was and not caring. And she had very severe rheumatoid arthritis and she was in a wheelchair. And but she loved to wear, you know, these fancy hats and dress kind of ostentatiously and you know, be, you know, often people in wheelchairs are sort of invisible, and she was definitely not invisible. And I think the thing I grieved the most was not getting to spend more time with her in that phase of life and having that role model, that very intimate role model in my own life of what what it means to grow into your own power as a woman, as you get older and as you care less and less about, you know, what society tells you you should be doing and looking like and thinking and all of that. Exactly. And I think that really is what kind of sums up the idea of HAG to me. It is that freedom
0: from expectation of others that it, you know, perhaps for the first time in somebody's life, in a woman's life, it's not focused around serving other people, whether as a mother or a partner or um, as a manager or, you know, whatever your, your profession might have been, but it's a focus on on who you actually are in the world and what your gift is to the world. And so I think for me, that hag, crone you see to me always conjures up a really ancient kind of wizened woman. Mm. So kind of like, you know, the real late stages of elderhood. Whereas I think that the, the various faces of the hag archetype can stretch from Mm -hmm. menopause, midlife all the way through to the end. Mm -hmm. And it's just those, those different faces that, we have to find our, our own kind of inner hag, as I, I suggest in the book, but we'll come back to that in a, in a wee while. Where are you in your own journey to elderhood and your experience of menopause particularly?
1: Well, I entered menopause officially three years ago. It's when I had my last cycle. Um, it, it came sooner than I expected, and I it was welcome for me because my whole life, my cycles were always very painful so I was always eager for menopause to come yeah and and you know menopause came and and suddenly I found myself really wanting even more time alone than I already did, which I tend to be, I tend to be very drawn to the hermit archetype. (laughs) So my hermit side sort of became amplified in some ways, COVID, the the COVID came a year after I started menopause. And in some ways it really um, kind of helped me, I think because I was able to really honor that, that pull to go within and it. You know, I started to really identify with um, Julian of Norwich, who is an anchorite in the Christian tradition. And that's I think she's kind of the patron saint of um, of, you know, women who are who live during plague times and are called to that interior journey. Uh, So, yeah. And, you know, it hasn't been necessarily easy in terms of symptoms, but there has been there has been this great sense of freedom and definitely a sense of, uh, I don't, I'm much less tolerant of things that feel like they're wasting my time. Uh, I get much more irritated (laughs) by those things, but not in a, like, it's not something that lingers for me. I just, it's sort of that irritation is a lovely prompt just to deal with it and, you know, make sure that that doesn't happen again. And so, you know, things, anything that just, Yeah, I think because I'm at this time of my life when, you know, I am past probably the halfway point. Uh, I'm 52 now. And, you know, and my parents only lived to be their early 60s. So there's, I think, a very, um, very kind of acute sense of awareness of my own mortality that's, that's coming. Um, And, and I've had some medical issues this last spring that, thankfully now have been dealt with and I'm feeling starting to feel much better again and just yeah it's like this time of harvest too has been a real uh, image for me this you know the work that I've done over the years I feel like the fruitfulness of it has really multiplied in, in ways that it did before but now I think just you know all of the of the things that I've studied over the years and all the people that I've worked with and all the kind of wisdom that I've gleaned you know it's all it's all there for me to access which is wonderful and and I know that I still have lots more to uh, deepen into (laughs) so I'm excited about I mean I'm very excited about the next half of my life so it's I feel like it's an exciting time (laughs) and do you think
0: the nature of the work will will change? Do you anticipate that? I know it's hard to predict sometimes, but is there any sign of that?
1: Yeah, you know, that's a great question. And I ask myself that actually, in different ways. Um, What, what, what will shift? Now, I will say, in some ways, it has shifted in that our community before the pandemic was primarily a platform for my own work. And during the pandemic, because we were trying to really support people in this journey of uncertainty, we started to experiment with all different kinds of things, with these prayer services and with hosting retreats from other people that would lead them. And and so now I'm sort of seeing Abbey of the Arts as almost this organization that has a separate identity from me, which is also freeing. and so there's a sense that I'm, I'm developed, there's a development there around serving the community in ways that I, I probably wasn't as aware of before. Um, and so my, and it's still a platform for my work. It's, that's still kind of at the core of things, but it's hard. It's kind of hard to explain because I think I'm still sort of feeling my way into it, but there's a, a sense in which I'm aware of, um, you know, that we are like a real community, spiritual community. And for a lot of people who come, who've left Christianity or who, um, you know, are looking for a Christian community that uh, is progressive and welcoming of, you know, LGBTQ people and, you know, women affirming and all of that, you know, that I, I feel like we're trying to be much more um, articulate around that. And um, yeah, just sort of more Uh, reaching out in different ways than I would have before. And I I thought it was the pandemic. And I think that the pandemic was sort of the instigating event. But I do think there's something to do with with the menopause experience as Mm -hmm. well. And yeah. And it, it does sort of feel like it frees me up a little bit to think differently about my work. And I don't actually know what that means exactly.
0: Oh, well, it's kind of early days in a sense, isn't it? So it's yeah. a one. I'm, I'm a, a few years ahead of you, but I have felt mm-hmm. exactly the same kind of really strong pull to, to make my work less about me, which, of course, mm-hmm. it, you know, it, when you when you are the writer who teaches based on her work, that's inevitable mm-hmm. um, that, that you would you know, predominantly work on those things alone. But certainly with the, the Haggertude program that surrounds the, the book, there is a very strong sense of needing to bring other people into it so that it has a life beyond me.
1: Yeah, that sense of collaboration, I find very exciting. And I feel like that's part of the harvest as well as those relationships that I've cultivated. I mean, some of the people that I'm working with are people I've just met, but some of them are people I've had relationships with over time. And we've always tried to be collaborative. But yeah, it sort of feels like, oh, this more communal, Mm -hmm. even more communal sort of focus and um, way of way of doing the work yeah Indeed. And, and certainly for me it's also a way
0: of kind of m- mentoring or um encouraging younger younger people who have yeah. the same kind of or well, similar kinds of gifts to to be able to step forward a little bit more so that's um that i think is one of the one of the nice things about elderhood that that just really feels not only possible but actually quite urgent in, in mm-hmm. Some. Mm-hmm. so if we think about those women in christianity that either are reason- really interesting examples of um activity in the the second half of life the 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 one that i wrote about in haggitude is someone i know who's very close to your heart as well which is hildegard of bingen and you will undoubtedly know much more about her than i do because i know you've led retreats on on um on her work but what drew me to her is that she um i think it was in her 43rd year she said she began to have quite strong visions and that was really mm-hmm. interesting because you know we don't know anything about hildegard's relationship to to menopause it wasn't something one would have written about um at the time but that sudden um mysticism um intuition turning to the spiritual or the archetype of of what tony wolf jung's collaborator called the the, the medial woman, it, it is, is something that seems to happen to everybody in some form or another. So it really was interesting to me that these visions appear to arise in the mid part of her life. And then of course, it wasn't until she was 50 that she began to write them down with the Pope's permission. And then, you know, I think she lived until she was 81, Mm -hmm. um, at which point she had apparently completed five books, composed 77 sacred songs and created the first ever musical morality play. Um, I'm reading my notes here. She had corresponded with hundreds of petitioners, had publicly campaigned against church corruption and sexual misconduct by its priests, and had embarked on four speaking tours around Europe. And that was a woman <laughs> in medieval mm-hmm. times. I mean, she was clearly an, an extraordinary character. So, tell me something about what she means to you.
1: Yeah, I I have a great um, great love and affection for Hildegard of Bingen. I actually first met her or encountered her in graduate school because I had a love of the Benedictine monastic tradition and I discovered that she was um, Benedictine, a Benedictine abbess, so she would have been part of that, um, you know, tradition of prayer. Certainly that rhythm, that daily rhythm of, of praying seven times a day was Um, absolutely central to her foundational to her because she, not only does she compose all this music, but she writes about how essential music is to the spiritual life. And for her, you know, the, it's basically, there's this perpetual celestial harmony that's happening. And when we sing, we're in some ways kind of touching paradise because we're trying to join that, that celestial choir. And there's an interesting letter that she writes at the end of her life where uh, basically there's a, a man that's buried in her sister's cemetery who, um, had been accused of a crime. And so the, the, the church hierarchy, the men said they had to, you know, dig, dig up the body. He wasn't allowed to be in church grounds. And she said, Oh no, he was reconciled to the church. So we're not going to do that. And, um, and so the, the hierarchy basically, uh, um, told her for, uh, you know, until they did this, until they dug her, him up, she wasn't allowed to have the Eucharist, or, and she wasn't allowed to sing the liturgy of the office. And she writes this very powerful letter. Um, she's definitely known for challenging the church hierarchy, and she writes <laughs> this very powerful letter. And what, what's really interesting about it is, and she, and she really kind of scolds them for, um, for what they're doing, Uh, But she basically in the letter says that taking away the music for her is even more more of a breach than having to not receive the Eucharist, which I found very fascinating and just kind of points to how much the music kind of plays a, a role in her life. But she's, you know, she's this multi- faceted woman, she was a herbal healer, she had her visions painted, she writes this beautiful poetry as part of the lyrics of her songs, you know, she writes theology, and she actually did have visions from, she reports having visions from the time she was a child, I think they became more intense at midlife, and also what happens is the first half of her life, the first maybe, once she enters the the, um, convent, where she actually is an it's reported that she's an anchorite for the first few years of her life, meaning she's walled into a cell. Um, there's some scholarly debate about that, but she's she's in a Benedictine community and she's living with Yuta, who's her kind of mentor, and their anchorites um, living in that community. Eventually, they leave the holding cell and they're part of the wider community, and many nuns come to follow her and she's part of that, uh, it's called St. It's Rupertsburg. But then at midlife, so not only does she have these visions and she hears this voice that says, cry out and write. So God is basically commanding her to write her visions. She also leaves Rupertsburg where she's been for, you know, 45, 50 years and, um, moves basically down the hill <laughs> and opens another monastery and then later opens a third monastery, I mean, a second monastery that's across the, the Rhine River there. Um, and so, I mean, it's kind of remarkable in some ways. I, I think of, you know, she's she led this very sort of Eremitical hermit sort of existence for the first part of her life. And then as she got older, the more bold and the more work that, and the more flourishing that came. Uh, yeah, and so she founded these communities and the community across the Rhine is still, is still in existence and still there's a, a new building there, newer building there, but the, the Benedictine nuns of St. still are still there and still keeping her tradition alive. And one of the, the
0: lovely things about her is that her particular brand of mysticism, if we want to call it that, is, is founded very much in a passion for the natural world. Yeah. Uh, and a passion for the earth and she really thought that our our relationship with the earth was was hugely important and wrote about it as a living force um that yeah. was endowed with the same vital power that animates all life forms which again for the time in the christian tradition is quite remarkable isn't it
1: yeah she has that it's actually one of my favorite teachings of hers. she has this word that she coined which is the reditas which basically means the greening power of God. And for her, that greening power, you know, is what keeps all of the natural world flourishing and fertile and vital and all of that. But she also sees it on the spiritual level. So the, you know, our souls can also have that sense of flourishing or dryness, depending on what, what we're doing in our lives. And um, yeah, it's this beautiful sense of, um, you know what what are we doing to allow that flourishing through and she looks at creation as well and sees you know sees how humankind sort of interferes with that with that flourishing and as if all of that wasn't enough she also wrote about the
0: feminine um principle uh, yes as part of the divine so sapienta
1: or wisdom yeah, um, yeah wi- wisdom yeah exactly exactly wisdom yes. was Um, very central to her theology and visions. Also, Mary was hugely significant for Hildegard. And in some ways you could almost read some of her, particularly her songs to Mary. She talks about Mary, you know, that Jesus can't even come into the world except that Mary, the woman, the human woman that she was said yes. And and of course that's that's a teaching of the church, but for her, it was so central that it was the woman who said the yes, that allowed this event to happen. That I think is quite remarkable.
0: So we have an environmental activist who's also a feminist Mm -hmm. (laughs) who comes into her own at midlife and then flourishes all the way through elderhood. I mean, she really is. in in a sense, a kind of perfect example of how to use. You couldn't really get very much better (laughs) than that.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly.
0: And and are there others um, in the Christian tradition that you can um, offer up?
1: Yeah, there's, there's many women, you know, I I think, you know, sort of thinking about this, because some of the women mystics that I love, you know, lived quite a long time. And but then, of course, you think, well, they didn't have children. So they didn't have that threat to their, um, (laughs) their aliveness, that risk of mortality, uh, and probably lived lives that had, you know, that weren't quite as sort of rough as maybe a, a an ordinary person would have um you know and the, the church for all the patriarchy of the church it did at least give women an alternative to life as a mother because that was really the only other option that they had was to have lots of children so there's lots of women who enter the you know enter the convent and um and then they're able to learn to read and um they're, you know, they're able to basically get access to things that they wouldn't have otherwise, you know, and then we have women. So, you know, I mentioned Julian of Norwich earlier, and, you know, we don't know exactly when she entered the anchor hold, but it is believed that perhaps she had been married beforehand. She lived during the time of the the Black Death, the plague, um, she lived, you know, till about 60 years old. So, you know, sometime around midlife, we think, around, probably around her 40s was when she entered into that. And she also had a whole series of visions. And interestingly, she writes um, a short text of the visions Uh, just after she has them but then spends the rest of her life writing the long text of her vision so it's sort of that I think that lovely image of kind of harvesting you know what's come and deepening into into those visions that she had Uh, and she also is a remarkably um, kind of creation friendly sort of (laughs) mystic and sees the wholeness of, of creation and the gift of that she even calls um, Jesus, she even um, uses the image of mother for Jesus, so she also has that sort of feminine aspect of her of herself. And then you have people like Teresa of Avila, who also have a series of visions uh, in midlife and wrote her book, um, The Interior Castle, which is probably her best known book about this this interior mansion that all of us have and these seven rooms of the soul. And she wrote that, I, I think she was about 60 years old when she wrote that. So it's sort of that again, that midlife. I'm I'm very curious now from this conversation to look at that text specifically with this question of like, how would, you know, how would writing this now, of course, a certain level of spiritual maturity needs to come in, I think, to write a book like that. But also just to ask this question, like, how does this book differ in that knowing that she did write it as as an older woman who had had you know quite a lot of life experience behind her so anyway there's you know there's Teresa of Avila um, and I just want to mention Angela of Fligno because she's not as well known and she was a Franciscan she was I shouldn't I should say she was actually married and had children and She had a conversion experience and some visions, and she joined a lay order of Franciscans. She lived quite near Assisi. And then we hear this story. I I don't know the details of it, but we have this story that her mother, her husband, and all her children died when she was around 40 years old. Quite tragic. And then she basically goes on to found her own kind of order of lay Franciscans in that second half of life as well. So sort of, I like that. I like finding some of these women too, who had both the experience of motherhood and sort of the ordinary life, as well as um, moving into that religious life and, and what that offered. So, so those are a few, few examples. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting to see that, that most of them um, at least
0: do have this, strong sense not only of the feminine being important which perhaps wouldn't be quite so surprising but that strong sense of um needing um, a focus on the earth because as as you know that that is such a strong part of pre-christian native traditions in in Mm -hmm. this part of the world um, of women particularly being associated um with with the earth and um with maintaining the balance if you like between humans and their relationship with the earth so it's kind of nice to see that some of that passed um, across into the Christian tradition as well, albeit very much later. So the other area that I know that you have been thinking about, and it is, it seems to me to be relevant in, in many ways, is to look at some of the women whose visions or life changed or their work was in some way enhanced as a consequence of passing through quite serious illnesses and i guess this interests me because for for a lot of people of course um midlife is challenging because it can usher in illnesses uh, and Mm -hmm. all of us are going to you know encounter some kind of physical degradation at some point if we live long Mm -hmm. enough um before we die but for 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 people who come into um more profound states of of um of disease or, or disease um at this period of time it would be particularly challenging so tell us about some of those women
1: well it actually is some of the women that i already um spoke about you know like julian of norwich she did actually get quite quite ill when she had those initial visions um she she was actually given last rites they thought that she was you know on the verge of death and she was able to recover fully hildegard um was ill quite a lot during her life. It's interesting because, um, you know, some people try have tried to explain away her visions as having migraines. <laughs> and I think, as someone who's a migraine sufferer, like I've never had visions yeah, like that. Really okay. <laughs> but she did. She did actually suffer with illness quite a bit. And one interesting thing is, oftentimes the those illness experiences came at moments when, um, when she sort of wasn't getting her way. And I don't mean that in like an impetuous kind of way, but, you know, the church hierarchy would being resistant and suddenly she would take to her bed and she would be quite, quite ill. And they would sort of eventually succumb to whatever it was that she's and She was basically kind of saying like, you know, this is God's message (laughs) to you to, um, to come around to, to this way of thinking, because this is clearly what what God wants. So it's kind of interesting. You know, I'm not one to look at illness personally as, you know, as sort of a message from God in terms of, like, I don't think God causes illness. Um, I do think that um, that we can experience that divine sacred presence with us as we're in that journey towards healing, whatever that looks like. Because obviously, for some people, the healing may never be, you know, a cure, but it may be um, kind of greater integration or wholeness. Um, so, yeah. So she did. Claire of Assisi too. She was uh, someone who was actually ill quite often, quite a lot during her life, and she's someone who was more drawn to a, a quieter, more sort of um, contemplative life. And she, of course, was the Sort of sister saint to Francis of Assisi. I mean, she wasn't his his literal sister, um, but I, I think they make an interesting sort of pair. Because Francis, being the sort of very, you imagine sort of very boisterous and outgoing, and you know, taking off his clothes in the public square and renouncing his father's wealth, and you know, going off with his brothers to um, to basically preach the gospel and and really preach a, a message of Poverty and simplicity, and sort of criticizing the church, you know, for its ostentatiousness. And so Claire has a similar sort of message. She very much embraces that kind of vow of poverty that we find in the church, but as very much a a way of simplicity and a way of um, aligning herself with those who are most poor and on the edges and the most vulnerable. I think that. I I do see that quite a bit as well. Sort of that experience of illness bringing some of these women closer, even closer to that sense of the suffering that others experience. And you know, I think any any of us who have been through illness in a conscious way uh, will just, you know, will find sort of this heightened sense of compassion for those who are who are vulnerable when we get to the other side of it.
0: And I think there's also a a sense in which illness um, of that kind, chronic illness that is debilitating in many ways reflects the process that is going on post-menopause anyway, you know, that sense of Mm. you call it simplicity in the example that you just gave, but but a very strong push to focusing in to to I mean, menopause to me burns away all the clutter, you know, it burns away mm-hmm. all the stuff that you actually don't need for your work. And there is a sense in which illness does that of the kind we're talking about does that too, because you simply don't have the energy or capacity, mm-hmm. all of the things that you might've done back in the day when you didn't have that illness. And so that sense of, of a process, whether it's illness or, or elderhood and menopause that allows you to really, really focus in on, on your, on your calling, on your gift, to the world is really to me it seems what the essence of elderhood and that journey is about Mm -hmm. yeah that's beautifully said and how do you how do you think of these characters in um these female characters whether they're elder elder women or or women who have been kind of honed um by the process of illness in the context of a church that is still largely very patriarchal and focuses very much on men. Do you see a, a resurgence of, of interest in these female characters? Is it only a resurgence of interest in women, <laughs> in, from <laughs> women rather? Um, how, how do you think? How do you think Christianity is changing, if it is at all, to begin to more fully incorporate
1: these different views? Well, I think, you know, we certainly benefit from living in an age of, you know, greater scholarship. And, you know, we've had a lot of wonderful researchers who've been able to um, bring these stories, you know, the the knowledge we have about Hildegard, you know, a lot of it only came in the last, you know, 30 or 40 years. And, you know, uh, many of these women would not have been meticulously studied and offered up you know, and if you think about Catholic tradition, there's doctors of the church, and there's, I think, only four um, women in that group. And I can't remember how many men there are, but there's probably like 40 of them, you know. And, you know, of course, it's a very patriarchal System, e- and even not even if you're not in the Catholic Church, I you know I have friends who are women who are ordained in other traditions, and you know years ago I thought, oh, if I left the Catholic Church, you know maybe maybe I'd want to get ordained, like say in the Episcopal Church. But what I discovered was from these friends that the system itself is so patriarchal and so hierarchical that I knew it would never it would never be a life-giving system to me. So I decided to sort of step out and um, yeah, kind of follow my own path, but still bring all these riches forward. And I do find that there's, you know, it's a tricky question about whether it's just women who are interested in the stories of women, because it actually happens to be women who are largely interested in spiritual, the spiritual life anyway, at least in in kind of Christian sort of circles. Uh, I do find that there's lots of men in our community who are, you know, very open to learning from these, these great women of wisdom. Um, I mean, they've always been there. You know, it's it's and they've always, you know, and it's remarkable to see, I think, the things that they were able to accomplish and do despite all of the, this, the odds against them, you know, and of course some of the women, uh, you know, were burned at the stake for it. You know, we have um, like in the, there was this amazing movement called the Beguines in the middle ages too, you know, where um, women chose another way, which was not motherhood and which was not religious life, but community life that wasn't, committed or promised to a particular community. They didn't take religious vows. They lived together loosely and they served the poor. And, um, you know, it was a very suspicious thing to have women, you know, banding together <laughs> on their own. And, uh, you know, you definitely have some of those women, among other other religious women as well, who, um, yeah, who were basically persecuted for that. And Marguerite Peretz, you know, is one of the examples of the, Women who was burned at the stake for for her teachings, you know, and um, and of course Hildegarda Bingen, she's a very. I think one of her strengths was that she was quite crafty in her ability to get the approval of men, you know. And I don't think, you know, and even some of the rhetoric that she uses in her her language, you know, oh, I'm just a poor woman, what, you know, but God is speaking through me, you know, so if God's speaking through me, just a poor woman, maybe you should listen. She, she, I don't think she ever believed that she was just a poor, meek woman, but she used (laughs) that, yeah, she used that rhetoric, I think, to sort of get men to trust her <laughs> and you know and then she she had to have the approval. you know she was she'd write to Bernard of Clairvaux you know who was when the founder of the Cistercians and um, get his approval on her vision so that she wouldn't be mm-hmm. accused of heresy. <laughs> interesting
0: yeah interesting so as you look ahead and it's kind of I know it's kind of tricky when you're still kind of not that far out, perhaps from, from menopause, but I wonder what you think your vision, for want of a better word, for, for elderhood is. So in Hagitude, and I know it's difficult, I haven't read it either, but, ne- but nevertheless, I, I talk about... A series of different types of old women in the old myths and folk tales of Europe who have different archetypical qualities. So, you know, some obvious ones. We have the fairy godmother, who is the, the mentor, if you mm-hmm. like. We have the characters like Baba Yaga, who is the dangerous old woman, the initiator who tests mm-hmm. uh, younger people. Uh, we have um, characters like the Irish Kalia, who is very much a kind of guardian and protector of the earth. Uh, We have um, tricksters and truth tellers, you know, old women who really come into their own in terms of their ability to strongly say what they feel is right in the world. Um, We have old women like the fates who literally weave the world into being, who are the kinds of creatrix characters. So just as a few examples, Is there any kind of archetypal character in a story or in your own head that you think you are possibly growing into that would kind of um, personify any of those qualities? I guess it's kind of what kind of an elder do you imagine you might grow into? And I call those archetypes kind of like, you know, it's sort of finding our inner hag,
1: Mm -hmm. um, which
0: one seems to resonate most deeply with us.
1: Yeah, well, as you are sharing those, I mean, I haven't thought about that question before. So, um, but I'll just share that, that my, I think I had the most sort of energetic response to both the kind of Baba Yaga figure and the Kaliak figure. And I think, in part, I'm really drawn to that sense of like the initiatory experiences of life and particularly illness, um, since that's been an ongoing experience in my life. And each time of an illness, what is that? What is the initiation that it's drawing me toward? And I feel like menopause is part of that. And I, I like the fierceness of her, you know, I'm, I think I'm drawn to that because you know, like most women, I was always brought up to be nice and polite. And I was never supposed to raise my voice when I was a child. And, you know, and I still don't really do that. I don't (laughs) yell at people. And, you know, I don't curse very much. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, there is that part of me that, yeah, that's kind of drawn to at least some of that inner fierceness to at least draw on that archetypal Energy of, um, I think when I was saying before about things that kind of waste my time, like there is a sense of like, you know, being willing to just sort of cut things off that don't feel life-giving, that don't feel nourishing, or things that feel like they're, um, yeah, that they're sort of drawing my energy away without any kind of reciprocal um, or mutual mutuality. And I love the kind of image of the kaliak, kind of as the protector of the land because i think like a lot of us <laughs> you know that sense of you know what is happening to the earth and what are we what are we doing you know what are we doing how do we what legacy are we leaving for people that are the young women and and men you know and <laughs> you know all people and creatures of course coming after us and i think that's i mean that's definitely a dimension of my work is sort of that Cultivating an earth cherishing consciousness is how I describe it, and I think as I get older, it will continue to be an important part of my work, and probably grow in its uh, grow in its importance. You know, that sense of how we know what are the yeah what are the practices and tools that I can offer to people to help them yeah cope with the anxiety of living in the world that's you know basically falling apart and then how do we critique I think the fierce part of it how do we critique you know the tools of capitalism and the patriarchy and all of those things that are you know that are basically destroying life so Mm -hmm. I'd say those are the two dimensions that most sort of call me
0: yeah and they have they do actually have quite a lot in in common it seems to me at some level um mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the kalyuk was a very fierce and feisty character in the same way that that babiaga was um you know she she was not to be messed with um she was dangerous in her way if she thought you know particularly if you were a hunter that was trying to take her pregnant deer out of season um and and my favorite one of my i think, I think it probably is my actual favorite story about the kayak is that one from ireland where um the priest comes knocking um at her door because he's heard that she claims to be very very old and he thinks you know that he can outwit her and show all of her claims and stories to be false so he totters along and um, knocks on her door and asks her how old she is and she says look every year of my life i've um, i've slaughtered a, a an ox um a, a male cow um for anyone who that um, doesn't uh, doesn't make any sense to and um, I kept a thigh bone from um, each of the oxen that I have killed uh, each year throughout my life and they're all stored up in the attic and she sends them up to count them she said if you count the um, thigh bones of the oxen you'll know exactly how old I am and the story goes that he counted for three days and three nights and eventually you know not exactly ran out of the the house screaming, but left with a slightly ashen face. And she cackled in the background because she'd actually gotten the better of him. So that sense of, you know, tricksy if you don't mess with her, but not, not in a sense of, you know, she's going to kill you and eat you up like the classic old witch in the woods, but. Um, just that sense that you don't you don't pull one over on the you know on the kind mm-hmm. <laughs> which yeah is yeah that's a great much story like Babi yaga in in <laughs> a mm-hmm. sense you know i mean uh, whoever would get the better of Babi yaga it's really hard to imagine so yeah i can i can see that and it's interesting how many of the women i speak to really love Babi yaga she seems mm-hmm. to be I think because she does it, you know, she is in some senses the archetypal old haggy witch in the woods Mm -hmm. rather than being the evil one who eats the children. You know, she just turns out to have this amazing power to to see the truth and to see through to the heart of a situation. And um, Mm -hmm. it kind of subverts that archetype of the witch in lots of ways, I think. And uh, the, the, the other question that I've enjoyed asking people in this little series of podcasts is. really about death because you know whatever kind of elderhood we have it is only going to end one way the end of the journey is is inevitably um in death and it's another one of those subjects kind of like menopause was until recently and and certainly um elderhood in women that we're pretty ill-equipped as a culture to to talk about so um I know that you know you've you've had some serious illnesses um, in your life. I mean, not necessarily immediately life threatening, um, but I wonder if that gives you any sense of life lived kind of in the shadow of death. Not necessarily in a negative way, but in a just knowing
1: mm-hmm.
0: that, that it's it's around you that it that it is imminent. Um, in 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 some
1: yeah. Well, when I was the year I was forty, that I turned forty, I did actually. Uh, end up with a pulmonary embolism after flying from Seattle where I was living at the time to Vienna, Austria, which is where my father's buried and my grandparents. And I went there by myself for a couple of weeks of kind of retreat. And um, yeah, ended up with an embolism had no history of blood clots. It took me me four days to figure out what was going on. and, And I was very aware of Um, Vienna is a place I love to walk for miles and miles and I was very aware of how I could have just dropped dead on the sidewalk there and then when my husband came to meet me you know the the sweetness of that sense of oh I am I'm alive you know I'm alive and somehow my body chose you know not to take that path and you know and that was two years before we moved to Europe and it was a significant threshold for me, like an instigating event of, oh, my life is not going to last forever. And, you know, both my parents, as I had mentioned to you that, you know, they died in their early 60s. So I knew, you know, even at 40, I sort of felt the sense of like, this could be, you know, midlife. And so, you know, we had longing, been longing to spend more time in Europe. And that was essentially kind of the, the initiation (laughs) event that brought us, I think, over to these shores. Um, And then, you know, in the monastic tradition, the desert tradition and the Benedictine tradition in particular, you know, there's a, basically a teaching that's very core, which is keep death daily before your eyes. And that's the Benedictine rule version of it. it. You also find it in the desert tradition. So it's a much, even a much earlier um, teaching. And it's always been, I think, one that I've been drawn to because of this experience with illness and this sense of, you know, what, what does that have to teach us to remember every day our mortality? There's a great humility that that um, imbues us with, the right to remember our limitations as well as our giftedness. Um, and then it, I've been, I was really praying with this that, that invitation a lot I had a major surgery in March and the couple of months before I was really pondering this and Saint Francis actually calls death sister death which I find a beautiful image of that sense of kinship and you know sisterhood with with this reality that's in our lives and um, and I was praying with sister death a lot before my surgery because I was very aware that even though, the surgery wasn't for something life-threatening. I I was very aware of the, the risk and the vulnerability that comes with having major surgery. And I wanted to, so I did some preparations and I had conversations with my husband. What happens, you know, some of them very practical and some just more on the emotional level. And then basically just a few days before my, I left for my surgery, I went and had it in Austria. My aunt got very ill, very suddenly, and um, she took, she basically decided to stop treatment. She had actually had breast cancer, um, stage four breast cancer, but she got this infection that overwhelmed her system. And her husband had called me on a Friday to say that she was stopping treatment. And I was so heartbroken that I couldn't be with her. Uh, in that crossing over and that threshold, because I I was able to be with my mother and it was the most significant experience of my life, I would say, being at sitting vigil with someone who who was dying and being at that moment of death. And so I spent that weekend basically sitting vigil and helping to midwife my aunt into death from across the ocean, because my aunt was living in Maine. And I called on Sister Death. I had just recently before that discovered this name of Mary. Uh, Apparently there's a black Madonna in France called Our Lady of the Good Death. And I know, isn't that amazing? We're about to. I'd have to look it up. Um, There's a wonderful book by Christina Cleveland called God is a Black Woman. And she did this whole pilgrimage. And I had just, re- all this whole pilgrimage in France to visit Black Madonnas, and I had just read about that before I knew what was happening with my aunt. So I had called on her. And I called on my mother because my mother was my aunt's older sister and, you know, I basically prayed that weekend and I had a dream the morning that she died, you know, where she came to me as a young girl and she reached to me and said, you know, it's basically it's going to be all all okay and I'm, you know, she was sort of in that light, I, I, you know. some of my from my relatives i would have more doubts about whether they were going to be okay when they passed over but with my aunt I, I had a good a good sense of that and so anyway i brought that grief with me to my surgery and um and there was something incredibly sweet about having my mother and my aunt's presence with me there and do, i've done a lot of ancestry work over the years and and so now feel this sweet sense of them waiting for me, you know, on that other side and not, it's, uh, you know, I'm not going to say that I, I welcome death right now at this point in my life. Cause I have a lot of living. I still want to do, but there's, there's some solace in that and some sense of, yeah, I think I've come to a point where I've I'm definitely more accepting <laughs> of my own death in a, in a deeper way than, more just more an intellectual level that it might have been, you know, maybe 10 or 20 years ago. So. (laughs) Um,
0: And does death have a face for you or is sister death it?
1: Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I guess I think of it as more of this kind of the energy that carries us across that threshold that moves us from the visible to the invisible. And, and for me that energy is love. And so there's a sense, I guess that it's that the death yeah, death carries us with love even if we're even if our death is painful or um, sudden or you know violent, you know, I do believe that there's um, that love is the ground of all being, and that love carries us across that threshold and wants us to continue to thrive in that other form. Whatever that is, I don't, you know, it doesn't look like the Christian heaven to me. it it's you know what it looks like exactly i'm not sure but i'm you know i'm open to (laughs) open to waiting a while to discover exactly what that is but (laughs) but yes but i do feel a connection to those who have crossed over the veil and so there's a sense of um friendship and yeah solace and comfort that comes from that how lovely no that sounds Mm. very
0: wonderful
1: Thank you for sharing that and thank you
0: so much for the conversation and the the, uh, the ideas and the women that you've introduced um, lots and lots of food for thought there, and inspirations to go and find out about. And finally, then, how can people find out more about your work and your books where, where should they go.
1: Well, well our website is abbeyofthearts.com that's Abby, Abbey A-B-B-E-Y. Um, And um, yeah, we have uh, lots of free resources there. We have a whole series of prayer cycle um, audio meditations for people who want to just sort of get introduced to our community and, and a newsletter with daily reflections. So people would be most welcome to check out the resources there.
0: Brilliant. Well, thank you so much. It's been really lovely to talk to you again. Yeah,
1: wonderful to be with you, Sharon, always.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of This Mythic Life in a series centred on Hagitude. And if you'd like to find out more about Hagitude, the book and the membership programme, please visit haggitude.org.